Last December, I had the opportunity to attend TED Women in Palm Springs, you know, back when we traveled to go places. TED Women is a main stage TED event, not a TEDx, but kind of, you know, the, the primary TED. And uh, it is devoted to celebrating women in different areas of thought leadership as it relates to technology, education, and design. And I had planned to attend with my friend Liz, who invited me to apply. You have to apply. And then Liz changed her travel plans, and I had already had the ball moving, and I was excited to go. So I decided to just go by myself, which is cool. Grown-up people do that. And it was delightful. But the thing that's a little bit tricky about being at an event like that and going when you don't know anyone is meals. So... It's one of those moments where as an introvert, I have to sort of bolster my courage and put on my best people skills and just walk up to strangers and start talking to them. It's actually a fantastic way to make some new connections. I made some wonderful connections and friends doing just that. Today's guest is a woman that I met over lunch at the TED event. I was sort of meandering around. I think I looked a little bit lost and I asked if a seat near her was taken and she said yes. And not only did she invite me to sit down, she just invited me right into the middle of the conversation that she was having with the other people seated in the area. And she was curious and engaging and warm. And I knew instantly, this is an amazing person. Deeply kind, really smart, really observant and intuitive. We struck up a friendship of sorts that day. Her name is Pam Sherman. So Pam is an attorney by training an actress by passion, and someone who exerts a tremendous amount of energy helping business leaders and entrepreneurs think about how to be fully and emotionally present within the context of their leadership. Her framework is called Outlaw Leadership, and her book, Suburban Outlaw, helps walk people through exploring their personal edge. Edge as in explore, dream, grow, excite. Pam's work was recently featured in the New York Times, an article titled Leaders Are Crying on the Job, and maybe that's a good thing. So given her thoughtfulness, energy, and a deep wisdom around the subject of emotional presence in professional settings, I was so grateful to be able to chat with her about the real emotional challenges that all of us are facing, especially those of us who are also tasked with leading groups of people through what is an extraordinarily challenging time. So if you want to know more about Pam's work, she is at thepamsherman.com and her most recent book is called Suburban Outlaw. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs. And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So I think, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you is just thinking about your tremendous experience working with leaders and entrepreneurs and helping them 
be thoughtful about how to lead from an empathetic place and realizing that in the midst of layers and layers of crisis and pain that is kind of inevitably all around us right now, I can only imagine the way that people are now like, oh, feelings matter at work or feelings matter in leadership. Does it feel like everybody's finally like, oh, Pam, all the things you've been saying for all this time. I was thinking about that this morning because I think Ariana Huffington just put out something about how HR is, is going to be at the forefront of ensuring not just safety, but you know how companies culturally can grow post-COVID. And all I keep thinking is, isn't that what HR was supposed to be doing all along? <laughs> uh, you know, for years I've been talking about all this stuff about being human at work and suddenly people are realizing we're in these intimate places. You're in my bathroom because it's the best sound or, you know, I can't get away from my kids or so with that, I think we're dropping all sorts of pretense, but I still think it has to be done without manipulation and it has to be done thoughtfully and it has to be done for others. It can't be about you. So. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes as a leader, it can feel hard to really strike that balance of how do you authentically share who you are, what's on your heart with your team or with your the people that work with you, yet not use it as your own therapy session, not use it as your own like venting of all of your pent up feelings and opinions. How do you craft it in a way that really does serve others and isn't just for your own venting purposes? I can't help but be reminded of the CEO that uh, of a bank that wasn't doing well. And he was constantly going on these tours where they were supposed to be billed as listening tours, but instead it became the crying tour because he would go and cry or fall apart or wh- whatever. So he was very emotionally able to tap into his emotions, but he really wasn't thinking about the most important people in the room, which isn't him, it's the other people. You know, I come from an acting background and so we learn that the most important person isn't you, but the other actor, that your job really isn't acting at all, but reacting. And so great leaders, the way that I think that they can handle crisis is really understanding that their presence has an impact on others. And so to that end, one, they have to know how to be who they are authentically at the core in the best possible way. And two, they have to really understand what's on their audience's mind and what they're concerned about. That doesn't mean that honest emotions won't happen in the moment, but they'll be able to adjust quickly knowing this isn't about me crying, this big snotty deer. You can tell like, you know, when someone's crying for themselves and someone's crying because they are tapped into the needs of others and it becomes important for others to know who they are. I call it authentic emotion as opposed to authentic emotional intelligence ultimately. I think one of the things that I want to I want to talk about both of those two points but the the first one that strikes me as sounds simple and is actually really much more complicated than we expect which is the question of 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 who are you and I think you know most of us who show up in public places and who are used to speaking with and leading others we have a sense of ourselves under certain contexts but who you are in the midst of covid-19 who you are as a human that's afraid of germs or experiencing financial instability, who you are in the midst of an uproar around racial injustice, those are 
those are more kind of unfolding aspects of one's identity that I think make leadership in this particular time really tricky. Like it, I wouldn't necessarily assume that every leader is has really done the work to think through things like white privilege or done the work to think through like their own personal reactions, which I think is an important first step. <laughs> Correct. And that's why we're getting a lot of tone deaf reactions or, or leaders who are, well, boy, get the communications team on this. We need to respond as opposed to really looking within themselves. I still believe that, well, we might adjust to various situations and crisis make certain aspects of who we are. You know, you are the psychologist, so I, I pay deference to your incredible knowledge about this. But, but I do believe that we are often we are at the core, typically one thing, right? Who we are in the world. It is, if I, I may be being very reductionist in that, but if I know that my core defining word is energy and that my response, which is the work I've done for myself. So my response to a crisis or what's happening in the world with racial injustice is I have to throw my energy to that in a way that will have impact on others, make a difference and help me to change and grow, right? So I actually think there's certain things, like I believe our purpose on this planet is immutable. It doesn't change. And so great leaders have done the work to understand what their purpose is. But what might change is the mission driven by core values that might grow and change in response to what's happening in the world. How it gets embodied. Absolutely. Right. And you might tap into different things, you know, which is why it's interesting in the article that Jessica Bennett wrote in the New York Times about gender and men and women crying. You know, I think what we're really all seeking is leaders who are willing to be human and vulnerable because they are showing, frankly, that this is huge. Like what's happening in the world is really huge. I don't think that, you know, 400 years of injustice, that suddenly people are waking up to it. It's that it's like now it's got to change. And we were all probably raw and vulnerable to begin with. And these murders have been happening. You know, the murder of George Floyd, these have been going on. It's not new news. This isn't new news, but maybe we're all finally, there's a resonance of emotional availability for many others to tap in and become part of the solution. Yeah, and I think we're under this this pressure cooker of isolation. And now I think beginning to revalue and relook to our communities to be different kinds of, of safe places for everybody. And to our workplaces too. It's interesting. And I think we talked about this, the fact that there's intimacy just in this moment, you know, where, where are you? You're in my home. The boss is being seen in their bedroom because that's where they are. That's the only place they have quiet in the house. So we are tearing down walls. So why not tear down these huge walls that are and obstacles that are keeping such valued members of our world from being truly respected in the anti-racism movement or in Pride Month. So we need to talk about what's happening in the you know trans community and LGBTQ community and, and frankly marginalized communities all over the place. So so maybe this is an inflection point where some good can come from the emotional resonance that's happening in the world and in leadership. Can you talk to me about how you think about empathy in leadership? It's one of my favorite words. It's a rich word for me as a therapist. But when you think about empathy, and maybe this ties into what you said a few minutes ago about it's this awareness of how the emotional message is landing with others. It's an other orientation. And that's what empathy really is, isn't it? Yeah. 
I, I did a great exercise. I don't know, I think it was an insurance company with a leadership team that wasn't talking to each other. We we're so siloed. I'm like, why don't you just pick up the phone? I don't really get it, but okay, I'll come in and I'll facilitate. You can pay me a lot of money to tell you, hey, I think you should talk to each other. So I had them, they had to write their name on a card and then they had to pass it to the right. And then they had to act. I gave them a situation and they had to act like the, and then they all passed it to the right. So they got a different name. And they literally had to walk in the shoes of their fellow leaders and to act like the leader in solving a problem, but not themselves. And it was role-playing of the, you know, psychological role-playing. And there were all these aha moments because they're like trying to be careful, not hurting other people's feelings. And there was a lot of learning from the person watching somebody playing them. And there was a lot of learning from them. So to me, empathy is literally about walking in each other's shoes. There's a danger though in that. As a Jewish woman who has grown up with stories of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, you know, I can say, well, I can, I can empathize with what you've been going through because dot, dot, dot. And the answer is, can I really, can I really walk in the shoes of my friends who have, who are black mothers, who have black sons and they send them out? I can feel nervous about that. I feel nervous when my kid goes out, but, you know, uh, but it's different. So, so is there something deeper than empathy that we're all seeking right now? And then that's really it. I, I, I think empathy has to lead to action or else it's just wallowing. And I, I actually really appreciate that as a limit of empathy because the, the mind-bending exercise to sort of get yourself in someone else's shoes is incredibly valuable. But I do think that we can quickly and easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we understand and sometimes just the, the stop, the positioning of, I don't know. I haven't lived it. I don't know what it feels like. Please tell me, please explain, right? The, the like, shut up and listen. I think curiosity is probably a more important component of empathy than anything else. I mean, that's, that would, what a conversation that would make versus let me tell you about my experience, which co-ops your experience, which means I understand your experience. So it's almost as if, you know, look, there's so many aspects to emotional intelligence and I am in by no means an expert. My favorite story about emotional intelligence was my son, who's now 20, 24. But when he was graduating high school, he was his last day of school. And he was always the kid who his feelings were expressed as this, I'm fine, which I believe is feelings I've not expressed. And he's a very deep kid. And I had to pay him senior year to read Daring Greatly by Brene Brown because he just wasn't tapping into his emotions. And I said, listen, I'll give you $10 a chapter. That's, I just want to affirm that parenting. I'm a big fan of like bribery when it comes to parenting. You have to, you have to report it back or you don't get the 10 bucks. But he was not expressing his feelings about, you know, ending all of his high school years and so resonant um, going off to college. And I think he was a little drunk when he came home and he said, I said, what are you feeling? Nothing. And I was like, Zachary, most important thing you can know is that in the future, emotional intelligence is the most important leadership skill I want you to have. I think it would be important in your life and in your, you know, in everything, every endeavor that you do. And I think I just finished reading Daniel Goleman's book and, you know, so it was all on my mind. I said, I'm going to give you this article. This is on his last day of high school from the Harvard Business Review about emotional intelligence. And I really want you to read it. I roll, I roll, I roll. (laughs) No, no, worse. He finally is like, mom, stop asking me. I'm sad. Okay. And then he went running upstairs and I was like, Yes. Score. Score. I (laughs) I got a feeling word out of him. I got a feeling. And I think right now I want leaders to have a capacity to understand the language of feeling. 
it's not always just about showing your feelings, but to really be transparent in and having a the ability to know that there are so many feelings coursing through us that you have to be able to express it without being pushed to the brink of crying so that your people know that you're human. You know, and I think that's really important for entrepreneurs who are, you know, look, there's a lot of economic unrest that comes with all of this and just, just businesses that will never recover. So where will they where will they find their next innovation, their next creation, it has to come from recognizing the feelings of mourning and grieving that comes with what we left behind. Yeah, I think grief has been such a ripe conversation, certainly since the pandemic conversation began, that we're losing a lot all at once, losing our plans, losing, in some cases, people we love, losing our ability to, to move around freely in the ways that we're used to, losing our quiet private offices. You know, there's there's loss that we're marinating in. And I feel like it's, it's not easy territory for a leader. And, you, you know, it's interesting because I have to work with leaders who are trying to focus teams, ensure that their company will come back, whose whole industries have been, you know, really decimated, you know, think events, um, hospitality, restaurants. And yet out of the last major recession we had came the gig economy and Uber, Airbnb. And so what I always try and temper it with is let's not forget, and this was a great quote from a leader I was talking to about this in a women in leadership virtual event. And she said, well, let's not forget that there's moments of joy too. The joy we get to not have to get on a plane and we get to, you know, have our small children being adorable with you at home or the time I've had to spend with my daughter. And I never FaceTimed my 89 year old mother as, you know, I do every day. I get to see my mother every day now because of this incredible technology. So let's not forget that there's a spectrum of emotions that also include hope and possibilities, right? So the challenge of navigating that whole spectrum. Yeah. So when everything started two weeks ago, I had a leader who had just been elevated to leadership. You know, the company does nothing in the area of social responsibility, except its entire platform is about doing good in the healthcare field. And she said, I've got to say something. And I said, okay, well, let's figure out the balance. And that's really what all leaders, great leaders have to do is be thoughtful, transparent, consistent, and have a clarity of message that has impact for others. And so I'm so glad we did. And she reached out because I'm sure others were like, we have to really think about it. Is it the corporate thing? And it's no, it's just, I'm a person and I need to say this. And then the, the invitation to take a deep breath and do it well and do it in conversation. Exactly. And to not stop the conversation. I mean, that's really the most important thing is I hope that it is my hope that what comes out of this is that the work I've been doing for the last 12 years with leaders to get them to recognize that they need to know who they are, they need to know who their audience is, and they need to grow in their emotional intelligence. I start with myself. I'm trying to use this time to be thoughtful. You know, it's funny, I'm doing this great thing. Shazad Shamin wrote a book called Positive Intelligence and how we can tap into our sage mind versus our saboteur mind. So for six, six weeks, I'm doing this because... You're undergoing your own transformation too, right. which is a prerequisite, of course, for supporting others in their transformation. Yes. And I, the other person who I've been really watching in all of this is Susan David, who wrote Emotional Agility. 
And I just think her work is really smart. And then my other favorite is Annie McKee, who's at Wharton, who wrote Resonant Leadership. So there are experts who are really honed in this. And then I tap into that and I do it with the leaders that I work with and and hope it sticks. Yeah. I feel like one of the conversations that I'm having a lot from, in some ways, the mental health framing is around fear and the way that the fear of the unknown, I'll, you know, whatever the fear is, all kinds of fear really overrides much emotional nuance, much empathy, much curiosity, much even awareness of one's audience. Fear is such a, a powerful emotion. And I think, you know, many entrepreneurs have done their own battles with fear in different ways in order to even put yourself out there to start a company and hire a team and get momentum and, and do the deal. But this season has, I think, has come with it or have been accompanied with a resurgence of fear that I've not seen in a long time. And I think that is one of those things that I'm wrestling with, with people, even as the precursor to doing some of that deeper emotional leadership. So yeah, how does that come up for you and in, in your work? It's interesting because a lot of a lot of my work is around public speaking. <laughs> you know, is it true that that's like the most like I, I hear the quote all the time that it's the most feared thing? Is that true? <laughs> People are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying in a plane crash. I think that's a more even nuanced way of doing it. Um, so think about that. So it's a fear greater than death, and I think there is a Jerry Seinfeld joke that means that the person giving the eulogy is more afraid that the person already died, (laughs) 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 which I love. So fear is a big part of what I work with in trying to get people to open up and be comfortable with sharing who they are, wherever they are, in whatever context. And you know, there's I had a great acting teacher who said, and I use this quote all the time with my children, even. There's scared and you do and scared and you don't. You're going to be scared anyway, so you might as well do. And it's so much of courage. And I'm often asked to talk about courage. I don't know why that is. Um, because because you're a gutsy afraid. person? <laughs> well, no. I mean, well, what's gutsy? I, I have, I'm a bundle of fears. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of flying. I'm afraid of, you know, the difference is, and I think this is true of most entrepreneurs at heart, is they're scared and they do it anyway. They do it while scared. It was interesting. I was working with a very large company and the things that they were pushing in the last few years in leadership were, we really want our people to be courageous and agile. And courage was like a huge, managerial courage was huge. You know, how do we get our managers to be courageous? And then suddenly this hit and this company that had never done work from home suddenly had to completely, well, they were agile. They were courageous. They did it. I'm less afraid about people overcoming fear right now because I think there's like there's going to be a passion for it and a need for it then when things settle down and fear becomes something that stops you but you're not realizing that you're really afraid right you're talking about it now you're talking about it because we're in the middle of this huge upheaval in our country we're noticing it I am more concerned about the fear that turns us into the mundane makes us choose safe choices, makes us, you know, that sits behind and lurks and stops us from being creative and really pushing the envelope for ourselves. The fear and you don't scenario. The fear that keeps us quiet and still and in our caves. Right. So maybe that's the thing because there's going to be a return to normal. Salesforce has really laid this out really well. The three stages, there is, you know, the crisis stage, the like, how do we sustain this? And then the new normal. And, you know, I think for a lot of leaders, even in communications, 
I want the new normal to retain some of the urgency and emotional availability. And I don't want them to lose that. Like, can we keep the nuance and vulnerability and thoughtfulness, please? It's interesting. In the interview that I had with Jessica Bennett, I said, there's two times in my life that I have had this just cathartic feeling. One was when I was a miserable lawyer and I used to shut the door to my office and lie on the floor. And hide. No, I would cry. I'd actually wail oh, at the ceiling. It's terrible. That's not good crying. That's not good crying. Yeah. But the other time was when you're a new parent of any kind, when you have that like that exhaustion, right? Um, so either just had a baby or adopted a baby. And you just, you know, you're dealing with the emotional the responsibility of this being that is totally dependent on you. And I was never so emotionally available or cathartic. And I actually went in for an audition for, I was pregnant for um, a production of the Trojan Women with a acclaimed director who was very excited to have the chorus be naked and bald. Like you had to be willing to shave your head and be naked, which I was like, you may want to pay to see me. She was so, <laughs> so, she was so excited when I walked in pregnant. She's like, are you going to be pregnant when the, you know, because you know, <laughs> will you be naked and pregnant? And I was, but it was the best audition I'd ever had that I, for the part I'd ever got, because I was so emotionally available that I just didn't care. I didn't care. And I was like, nope, the baby's going to be three months old. I'll be really emotionally available. And this, that cathartic nature of, oh, it's such a beautiful word, catharsis. I, you come out of a catharsis, like reborn. Something comes from that. So this catharsis that we're all going through in business, in our, in our political lives, in our communities, and, and coming out of our homes, I hope will transform us. Leave us a little raw and soft. In, in a good way. In a good way, yeah. If that's, if that's possible, if our hearts could be bigger and more exposed, and if that could lead to um, entrepreneurs being willing to take risks. You've just gone through the big, biggest risk of all, which is to, you know, protect the people you love. So why not? Right. Yeah. Like as long as like that is okay, or somewhat taking care of your people are well, then go for the rest of it. Right. When fear comes up, I always ask, you know, so what is, let's go worst case scenario. Does that help to move the obstacle? I think it does. Because I think it pushes the question of like what's controllable and what's not controllable. So you can take responsibility for the elements that are potentially within your control. And I think for some things, I've, I've told this story before on the podcast, like when we first were, you know, understanding what a stay at home order might mean for us, like we made a list of, you know, what are the, the worst case scenario things? Like, I don't, like, I don't know, like are we to lose power because of coronavirus? I don't think so. But like, again, like zombie apocalypse, it's on the way. What do we need? So we got like a, a hand crank radio and all of this water and all of these emergency supplies that of course we haven't needed. But I think the fact that they're in the basement I'm just not worried about it, right? So the worst case scenario planning, I think does cut down some cycles of anxiety or fear because, okay, I've thought about it. When the zombie apocalypse comes, like I know I've got my hand crank radio, don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I have one. So I think that, that that just allows you to rest a little easier. Well, and isn't that what we do in business? I mean, we assess risk we take action upon what we believe are the risks we need to avoid. And then we can try and control the outcome. But, you know, to me, there's a whole lot of uncontrollable, like, again, you fear and you do, like you just keep going. Right. Well, it's like, I always laugh when people are doing budgets. I'm like, isn't that just like 
big old, you're making that up. Because <laughs> <laughs> how do you know what's really going to happen? And the answer is a budget really is just a hope, hoped for possibility. But, you know, that's just because I, I was never good at math. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I hope that these numbers. So, you know, you and your husband are both very successful in, in the work that you do. And I can only imagine in this season of the last few months have been constantly infusing that beautiful energy into the world around you. How do the two of you or how do you rest and reset? How do you take care of yourself in ways? This is so funny because we had a, a screaming fight yesterday about how he's not balanced. You know, you're an entrepreneur and you know, he gets up at 4.30 in the morning. I don't know what balance is for an entrepreneur. Let's just put that on the record. <laughs> I don't know what balance is for an entrepreneur, but I know, I know we need it. So it's interesting for me, I will say, you know, my balance, when I, I never think about balance when I'm working, when I'm in the zone. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you're in flow. Yeah. When you're working, doing the purposeful things that you mean to do. But I will say balance has really been cooking and making sure I stay healthy and exercising. And was, so we live in a cold place like you do in Minneapolis. We're in Rochester, New York, the home of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. So really a place filled with possibilities and hope but not in the winter. And it's winter from like October until May, mid-May, it was snowing. So I actually bought, uh, you know, I have two pandemic purchases that gave me balance. One was a bike, just a stationary bike that we put in the garage. We were lucky enough to have a heated garage. So I was like, so I needed that. That really helped. I needed to sweat. I've never done yoga because who had the time to like go to a yoga class? And, and my daughter was doing this 30 days of yoga. She's My kids are really inspirational. And I think at 21 and 24 are teaching me about how to have balance, which is great. So, so I started doing 20 minute yoga three times a week. And I'm like, I don't have to worry about like what I look like or falling over. It's in my bedroom. I love it. Sure. You didn't have to go to Lululemon and... <laughs> no. And then the other thing was I got a stand-up desk, which as a speaker who t- teaches presence and helping people to own the room, how could I not stand up when I'm presenting either in you know virtual events or even just in coaching just to show my diaphragm and oh my gosh it's got a button and it goes up and down and I love it <laughs> it's like a magic elevator a magic stand-up <laughs> desk but I, I do worry about you know we're in the middle of a chaotic period that doesn't appear to be ending and a lot of entrepreneurs are really good at doubling down and doing the work they are great they're going to, you know, they'll retool, you know, like one company was a party company and they started making masks. And there's a great story here in Rochester about an, a distillery that made whiskey, you know, now making hand sanitizer and did it in a day on a drop it on a dime. That's entrepreneurial pivoting in the best possible way. This is going on for a long time. You've got to take time to step back. Sure. If you keep pivoting, you get dizzy. You get dizzy, right? So we, you know, we are just trying our best as a family to stay connected to those we love from Zoom family events to Zoom cocktails to screaming at my husband at five o'clock in the morning, get back to bed. (laughs) Go back to bed and rest, I say. To rest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's fun to hear how people are 
simplifying in many ways. And, you know, I got lots of friends who are baking bread or making kombucha or just doing these kinds of nourishing self-care things that they've not, it's not been their jam before. I've oh, been definitely not my jam. Have you? Not oh, jam. I yeah, love that. I've, I've been writing <laughs> postcards. You know, I just have like a little stack next to my desk and whenever I'm like, oh, the world is sad. I just pick one up and like... And send, and send it to somebody that you love. I oh. love that. That's a great idea. So my daughter has been trying, has been making sourdough bread and I guess the cultivation of the starter is a big deal, but she keeps putting it in the oven with the oven light on because the house is fairly cold and it needs a certain temperature. And then I three times didn't realize it was in there and turned the oven on to heat it up to cook something to 400 degrees and oh, no. killed her starter. <laughs> and you would have thought that I had, you know, like think about like your child child's favorite toy or, you know, sure. I'm a starter, I'm a starter killer. <laughs> dashing future hopes just left and right. Well, it's my, I love sourdough bread, so it's a real problem, but I'm a great sous chef. I love cleaning up after her as long as she's doing the cooking. So it's all, and these are the gifts of what I think for me, this has been a very fertile time because I'm continuing to work with clients and then also now trying to write down all the stories of all of this for the book I've been talking about writing for the last two years, but I never had time to write because I was too busy getting on airplanes, going to the next thing. So I want to be the person who comes out of this and says, I, I produced something. There was a joke, Sherry, somebody said that nine months after this, instead of new babies, there's going to be a lot of new podcasts. <laughs> a lot of podcasts, a lot of books, some babies, I'm sure. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> well, for people who are curious about how they can keep track of where your next book is coming from or when it's coming, what's the best way for people to follow your work online? So the website is www dot the Pam Sherman, T-H-E, PamSherman.com. And the one and yeah, only. Well, no, because there is another one. So she got that one. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I think she's a podiatrist. <laughs> so if there's a lot of feet photos, you're not at the right that's website. Me. Um, so it's the Pam Sherman. I do write a column that's pushed out on the USA Today network called The Suburban Outlaw. And we post that on the website. And also on, it's the Pam Sherman on Instagram, Facebook, and find me on LinkedIn. So we are, we're really excited about Outlaw Leadership. Uh, dot com. And I've been putting out one minute videos about outlaw leadership skills to strengthen, especially during this time. And I really just love that we did that literally right before everything got put on lockdown. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hopeful that people will follow because I think being an outlaw leader is really about being the kind of hero that the world needs right now, driven, energetic, visionary, who's going to make an impact with who they are for all they serve. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. And we'll be sure to put all of that uh, information in the show notes so that if you didn't write it down while you're driving around, you can uh, find it on the website. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.